This is Republic of INSEAD, the 20 years later O3D podcast edition. I am Milena Ivanova and will be your host in this limited series. So, here we are, 20 years later, hopefully all the wiser, naturally smarter and as charming as ever. There were 432 of us in the O3D vintage. And certainly, there are 432 unique and very interesting personal and professional stories to tell. While I cannot physically cover all, I have tried to make a selection of stories that will keep you interested and curious and will hopefully convince you to join us on campus for reunion. Welcome to the Republic of INSEAD podcast edition and enjoy the show. Here we are. My guest today is calling in from Brazil. For more than 26 years, he's been dealing in asset allocation and especially alternative investments. Uh, for those who missed uh, Finance 1 or 2, uh, <laughs> he'll give us the summary. But I'll start with, instead of an introduction, uh, which I usually do, uh, I'll start with a quote from his uh, LinkedIn profile and let him take it from there, whichever way he wants. So, people don't remember books. They remember sentences. More specifically, they remember stories. So I'll leave him or I'll open with this quote. Uh, he can tell us more about the quote and then tell us his story of the last 20 years in a nutshell. And then we take it from there. Uh, hi there. Uh, well, actually, unfortunately, this is not my quote. It's, uh, I took from uh, one of my favorite authors. It's called, uh, he's called uh, Morgan Housel. And he writes a lot about uh, finance and investments in general. But, um, you know, he, his book is probably one of my favorites. I'll tell, I'll tell you about it later. There you go. So we started with the book. So tell us, where has uh, your life taken you in the last 20 years? Well, different places. So I, you know, after finishing INSEAD, I decided to stay in, uh, in Singapore because I love the place. And then uh, I actually joined another alumnus to set up a investment consulting firm, uh, which is called uh, GFIA. And then I stayed over uh, three years. But during that time in Singapore, I actually survived the Asia tsunami in 2004. Uh, I was spending Christmas in, uh, in uh, Phuket in Thailand. And like many, many other uh, alumni, I, I managed to survive, otherwise I wouldn't be here. But um, that, that, that was uh, one part of the story uh, after INSEAD. Then I, I moved uh, back to Brazil uh, and then moved to London uh, to establish the, the office of a uh, hedge fund manager, Brazilian hedge fund manager uh, in that city. And subsequently, I, uh, I moved to, to New York City, where I lived in the last uh, eight years before uh, moving back to Brazil. So uh, four different places in the, in the last 20 years. Um, in the meantime, I, I married for, for the second time and hopefully the last time, had a, a beautiful girl, uh, Julia, and uh, uh, also fell in love with uh, running. So I became a, an avid uh, marathoner. Uh, hopefully I'll, I'll complete the six majors in the next two years. But uh, that's, uh, that's basically the way I relieve stress. All right. And so tell on the so you've moved around and it's interesting you mentioned Thailand and the tsunami. I have another guest who's going to talk about it and how it has profoundly, profoundly changed his life. And in fact, his business now is the result of what more or less happened after he stayed in 
Thailand after after the tsunami. But that's a different story. Uh, tell tell me what has been the most challenging thing in these last twenty years for you, personal or professional? Or both? Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I was uh, uh, the the tsunami in Asia was basically the first of three tsunamis I faced in my especially in my professional life. So in my professional life. I actually uh, faced two other, say, tsunamis. One were, when I was a uh, partner of a um, Brazilian investment bank called the BTG Pactual. The majority uh, shareholder got arrested unfairly in 2015. And uh, basically, we, we, we faced the challenge to, uh, to survive at that time. Um, but uh, one of the things that I learned from that lesson, uh, from that uh, event, is that... Uh, uh, corporate culture matters uh, quite a lot, so uh, you know all those OB classes were actually quite uh, quite helpful uh, at that time. And uh, th- th- this was uh, one of the nicest, I think, turnaround corporate turnaround stories uh, in the local market. Uh, BTG after that became uh, the the biggest investment bank in, in Latin America. And the second uh, corporate tsunami is the one that I'm actually uh, living through right now, uh, Credit Suisse. I'm, I'm currently working at Credit Suisse. Uh, and uh, I think one of, one of the key takeaways uh, is how a centennial brand and franchise could, uh, you know, vanish in a, in a matter of months. It's, it's really a pity. It's, it's all about, uh, I think, uh, accountability or lack of. And uh, risk management as well, right? Uh, I guess even though it's it's a pretty solid brand, it got um, it got hit and uh, it simply disappeared in a in a matter of of months. Yeah, well, the specifics of banking is you keep it quiet the moment there's too much noise and confidence is lost. Uh, it becomes very scary very quickly, right? Because yeah, it's all about trust, right? If you think about what happened in uh, in some of those uh, uh, small banks in the U.S., Silicon Valley Bank and so forth, um, and especially nowadays that you can move money around uh, with with the touch in a, in a smartphone, it gets very, very tricky. So um, risk management, I think, became even more important uh, in, for, for financial institutions. Mm. So in terms of stress, so you've had a bunch of stress and you say you deal with it through marathons. Any other tips you have for? Oh, it's an obvious one, right? Uh, I think physical activity is is critical. I just read this book, uh, which is, uh, became a bestseller, Outlive by Peter Atia. It's a, it's a great book. Uh, it, it talks about how you can... Uh, live longer with quality it's a a a, a doctor that uh, focuses a lot on longevity and uh, physical activity is by far the most important thing uh because you know you take care of your body you take care of your uh, mental health as well um got to stay close to your friends got to stay close to your to your family uh human beings are social animals right so we need to we need each other um and uh, you need to belong to uh you need to perceive or feel that you belong to to a group of people, be it your family, be it your group of friends. So uh, that's that's uh, that's my tip. But uh, my tip is actually to to read that book because it's a fantastic book. It talks about a lot about uh, especially when you know we uh, become uh, closer to our fifties. Um, it, it makes you think. 
I'll swap one with you. I'll uh, recommend um, Lifespan. Oh well. yeah, that's a good one as well. Very good one. Right. So finance and asset management, managing other people's money is a tricky thing, right? Either you can or you cannot. I was in finance, but um, I can never touch other people's money. So I stayed on the other side for the time I was there. But um, what is the most difficult aspect of being successful in what you do, which is asset allocation? Well, I think in finance, one of the the the, uh, the features or one of the qualities that uh, it's very hard to to uh, stick to is actually humility. And uh, humility is like, you know, or lack of humility is actually like a cancer, right? It, it, it eats you over time. Uh, so humility to know what you know and what you don't know, right? Humility to... Uh, to keep learning and know that uh, you know you, you still need to uh, continue to develop develop yourself. Um, so that's that's very hard. And most of the most of the cases of, for example, private equity managers or hedge fund managers that uh, you know reach a peak, but after that they get into decadence is usually because of lack of uh, humility, right? Because someone uh, you you gotta know when to stop. Right. Mm. That's mm. basically mm. it. Yeah. yeah. But it's it's, it's uh, easy to say, but uh, very hard to, to practice. Yeah. The ego yeah. is a big factor. Remember, I don't remember which course it was in, but the experiment with the monkey, was it in finance? Ah, the gorilla, right? Yeah. Yeah. So how, how, how do you answer this? I mean, obviously, it's asset management is a huge industry. We cannot all put our money speaking professionally it's in the trillions in spx or whatever but mm -hmm. how do you respond to the argument of the monkey doing as good a job as your random no that's a good good point i, I guess uh, one of the things we we don't uh, study much uh, at business school is exactly the psychological or behavioral aspect of finance right and that, that experiment is actually taught in one of those courses um so uh, more important, even more important than being a good investor uh, is to be a good psychologist, I think. Uh, you need to understand what other investors are thinking. Um, and that's, uh, that explains a lot of uh, some of the movements in asset prices uh, overall. So most of the time I spend uh, uh, my spare time, uh, you know, reading, reading books or trying to learn more about psychology. Because at the end of the day, it's all about people, and uh, we need to know how people react to certain uh, uh, certain facts. Uh, that's that's one of the the things in finance that is really like uh, uh, underestimated, but it's quite important. Mm. So, can you walk us through the basics of the industry you're in, where it's coming from, and where it's headed? How much is technology affecting AI? All that. Oh, yeah. AI became a buzzword, right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, alternative investments is a lazy word, basically to describe uh, any investment that is not traditional. Uh, so traditional investments being, uh, you know, bonds, stocks, and things like that. So alternative investments compresses from, ranges from hedge funds, private equity, venture capital, real estate, infrastructure, all sorts of different investments. 
And uh, the size of that uh, group of investments uh, grew quite a bit. It's, it's estimated it ranges between uh, 17, 18 trillion dollars today. To give you a sense, this is, uh, you know, if you take the G7 countries, putting aside the US is the, the same of the GDP of, let's say, the, the largest six economies uh, in the world. But still, uh, it's relatively small compared to, say, traditional investments. So because of AI, for instance, uh, there's a whole euphoria about AI these days, right? So the top 20 companies in the S&P 500 index, they're worth uh, more than the total of all private equity venture capital infrastructure investments in the world, right? Uh, and um, uh, technology ov- obviously is a double-edged sword. Uh, it helps a lot in terms of uh, providing access for any investor to invest in any sort of investment. So Anyone today can invest in uh, with Warren Buffett or can invest in a private equity fund or infrastructure projects uh, all over the place. But um, at the same time, I think it creates some distortion. So to give you a sense, today about uh, one quarter of the whole stock trading that takes place every single day is uh, performed by machines, by computers and uh, algorithms and so forth. So... uh, so it's like in any sector, technology can be very effective, improves productivity and so forth, but um, it also has a negative side of it. And, uh, you know, alternative investments is why, why people get so excited about alternatives. Uh, I think the, the number one reason is uh, returns, right? It's a, it's a different way to uh, make more returns out of your money, out of your capital. Um, that actually started uh, quite uh, like the growth uh, became more rapid after the 80s when uh, some of the U.S. endowments started to invest in private equity, especially uh, Yale University endowment. And today, many different high net worth individuals, corporations and pension funds invest in, uh, in alternatives. How big is the portfolio or the, the assets that you are on top? Okay, at Credit Suisse, uh, we manage a book of around uh, $8 billion. That's primarily invested in, um, in Brazilian managers, uh, Latin American managers, but we do have uh, about a third of that exposure to, uh, exposed to um, uh, global managers, primarily in the US, a little bit of Asia as well. We also spoke in the preliminary conversation about seeding new managers. And oh, yeah. Can you walk us? Step by step, because presumably, I mean, I've spoken to a number of classmates who have raised funding, uh, but what are your inside tips? I mean, give us the process, how it looks from the inside and what advice you may have for people thinking at some point of trying to do this, to raise a fund. Yeah, city manager is one of the most exciting things uh, in my in my job. Actually, that's that's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about my my job. Um, it's basically spotting talents, right? And um, rough talents. Um, so we used to joke that <laughs> we're always looking for PhDs, poor, hungry, and desperate to make money. People. Um, but jokes aside, it's not um, it's not only about finding good investors, uh, whatever the, the, the investment niche is, but it's uh, always uh, helpful to find talented investors who also have soft skills, people skills. 
So these are people that have the entrepreneur uh, entrepreneurial spirit that know how to lead teams of, uh, of people. And that combination is very rare. So I'll say that uh, out of uh, every 10 man- new managers that uh, uh, I meet, it's probably one or two that have uh, like some uh, likelihood of becoming success- successful down the road. But it's, it's a very exciting uh, job because you meet a lot of smart people in different um, uh, market practices. So ranging from people that are uh, starting up a venture capital fund to a hedge fund manager, a new hedge fund manager. Uh, but the, the only way to really spot uh, and identify the ones that have more like likelihood of uh, are more likely to succeed is basically to spending time with that person, right? Because it's like, uh, you know, oh, my wife won't, won't like this comment, but it's like dating people because uh, you spend time with, uh, you, have, you grab a beer with the guy and then start to understand better uh, his reaction function to different uh, situations. At the end of the day, it's very important to uh, identify how the person behaves when uh, when things are going sour. Uh, and like any in any industry, the the first two years of any uh, uh, startup manager uh, are the tougher ones. So. Uh, if you identify someone that ha- has really these skills to not only uh, survive but thrive during the, those those bad times, it's um, it's probably the most important quality uh, we're looking for. And in terms of size, typically, what do you start with? Yeah, that's a good question because that depends on the strategy and the location. So business costs obviously vary quite a bit between, let's say, development markets like the U.S. or emerging market like uh, uh, Brazil. So generally speaking, I would say if a manager uh, in the hedge fund space or in the private equity space starts with, say, less than $100 million, uh, it gets tougher. And uh, it's not a matter of uh, seeding managers, not just a matter of providing financial capital, but uh, I think it's much more about providing intellectual capital. So we, we tend to spend a lot of time providing strategic advice uh, to the city managers because that's probably the, 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 the type of uh, knowledge that uh, some of those managers uh, like the most. Yeah. But I would say you know, between uh, $100 and $250 million is probably the minimal critical mass any manager has to have to to get started and you do it together with other funds or you yeah we can potentially co-invest that's always helpful but the the key criterion to co-invest is again not about money but about uh, let's say fit uh, in terms of providing strategic support for that particular uh, manager, so maybe some other financial sponsor that has more skills or more distribution capabilities, things like that that we don't have, and then we can combine forces to to provide the support for for that manager. But uh, usually we we do it uh, ourselves uh, alone and uh, al- alongside uh, some of our clients. Mm-hmm. And typically, how long would you be holding? Would you be invested? In- yeah, that depends as well on the strategy. If it's a more liquid strategy like a hedge fund, uh, it usually is a, a deal that has a duration of, say, four or five years. 
Um, if it's a illiquid strategy like private equity, real estate, uh, it usually takes longer. So we're talking about maybe uh, eight to 10 years, which is usually the duration of the first fund um, uh, of that uh, of that manager. But regardless of the strategy, we all know that the first two to three years is the key period for for knowing whether you know the business will take off or not. Uh, and the, the mortality rate across alternative investment managers in the first three years is probably what sixty percent, seventy percent these days. So it's pretty high. It's like startups, right? Oh yeah, yeah, a lot pretty of much. Don't survive. Yeah beyond three years um right so how do you think about esg and responsible investing and the environment and all these that have become hot topics now but at INSEAD we've been talking about or the school has been talking and putting a priority on it for quite a while but yeah how do you incorporate this into your thinking well i think esg is just one manifestation of doing good and i think all all different businesses can do good it's uh, so again it's one of the ways you can um uh do good uh, whenever you invest in investing in financial capital uh but it's not uh i would i wouldn't say it's not uh, uh I'm, I'm i'm being very cynical here but uh, i'm i'm not a big believer that uh, esg per se is a different it creates a different investment uh, category i think it's just you need to incorporate that in your investment process right so um whenever we're city managers obviously we pay a lot of attention uh, in terms of the sustainability and some other esg type of uh, uh, features but it's not um, uh, it became a more like a label right and, yeah uh, sometimes is is a little bit uh, overrated i guess yeah in terms of being a marketing tool as opposed to having substance, right? Absolutely, yeah. And, um, you know, the statistics that we have so far prove that. Uh, there's no much differentiation in terms of uh, uh, investment performance between what is ESG labeled versus uh, versus the rest. Yeah. You have any running commentary on the state of affairs of the market at this point in time? Let's say this year, 23, how it's looking and where Oh, yeah. No, definitely. Huh? I guess um, all of us, we live it through a period of uh, zero interest rates everywhere or low interest rates uh, globally. And that created a lot of anomalies and um, uh, distortions. Uh, so basically, the cost of capital measured by interest rates became very low during the last uh, 15 years. And when capital is easily accessible, uh, people make a lot of stupid mistakes, right? And uh, we're seeing some of that. Like one of the most recent examples is, is probably crypto. But whenever you look at, uh, you can find a lot of different uh, bubbles or mini bubbles that uh, um, people people created with easy access to capital. And uh, one of the things we, we we need to pay a lot of attention going forward is that uh, we're we're basically migrating to a different regime. Uh, we're, we're going to a period where interest rates will remain high for a certain period of time because of high inflation. I, I joke with my American friends that, uh, you know, most of them are less than 65 years old, so they never saw high inflation like people like us, I guess. Yeah, and, um, 
markets, we have the privilege of the joy of having lived with inflation forever and ever. Yeah, probably one of the few things that uh, Brazilians can uh, <laughs> brag about. Uh, so uh, it's it's a different regime, and therefore, in terms of uh, investments, uh, it, it changes quite a bit the the market environment. Uh, we need to be much more cautious about how we uh, allocate capital. We need to think a lot about allocating more capital to real assets because these are the assets that protect us from uh, high inflation. So think about uh, you know um, even equities, which is a real asset, uh, real estate, uh, infrastructure assets, and things like that. And uh, uh, I, I'm I'm afraid that the price correction uh, we we witnessed a big. Um, uh, Price correction last year in 2022, but I don't think that's uh, that's really over. Uh, there might be another another legs of correction. Uh, most of the markets today are not pricing in the recession, uh, particularly in the U.S. I think the only market that is really expressing some concern about recession is the commodity markets. Otherwise, everything uh, looks uh, pretty pretty too peaceful uh, from my point of view. Yeah. All right, so. And what would be a black swan event that we'd rather not think about? Well, we just uh, got out of uh, one black swan, uh, which was the pandemic. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, by definition, we never know what the next uh, black swan is. What, one of the things that I learned from a former central banker is that the improbable is different from the impossible. So there, there are lots of different things, uh, and obviously geopolitics, gets into the agenda now, right? Uh, but uh, there, there are many things that uh, we don't estimate as likely that might, uh, that might happen. Uh, one, one of the things that uh, I think people underestimate is exactly what we talked about, inflation. So inflation can get very sticky uh, over time. Uh, it, it doesn't revert to the mean uh, by any chance. And uh, if if inflation uh, gets too high, continues to be high in developing markets like the U.S. and Europe, uh, the one of the consequences of that is that the uh, income distribution gets more unequal over time because inflation is basically a tax that uh, primarily affects the the less wealthy people, and with more income uh, inequality, like social unrest becomes uh, more uh, more likely. Right, and we're seeing a lot of polarization in the political debate these days. Uh, I think it will probably get worse, unfortunately. And one of the reasons is actually inflation. And U.S. elections look scary, at least to me. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. So, last question on investments, and it's for the benefit of everyone listening. What would you recommend to people uh, twenty years after INSEAD in terms of what should they do with their money now? We're obviously not retiring, but okay. But most of us have uh, have kids, right? So we need to uh, save on behalf of our uh, uh, the next generation. I guess one of the the ways to preserve uh, purchasing power over time is again investing in real assets. And one of the real assets that I think is still has a lot of. Uh, good value uh, embedded in it is public equities, right? Uh, public equities is still one of the largest asset classes in the world. And if you if you invest in a diversified portfolio of um, public equities, if you, you have to pick just one, I would go for Berkshire Hathaway because it, it, it is by definition a 
diversified portfolio of public equities and private equity as well. So you you don't you you don't need to to do my, you know much analysis. Just go for Berkshire Hathaway and then you're done. There you go. Buy one share because they're in the tens of thousands or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, it's more than a hundred thousand, I think. Yeah, it's hundreds even. Excuse me, because they never split. They don't do the funny accounting stuff of usual uh, equities. Good, excellent. So we switch with that. We switch to my favorite topic, which is giving back and giving back to Insead. And uh, you are among the among our most generous classmates, and you've been making gifts to INSEAD for quite a while. Uh, you are a silver salamander, and you've been doing it very quietly. Uh, so thank you very much for, for your generosity. But I wanted to ask, and here it's actually interesting, because you said the first business you had after INSEAD was with another INSEAD person. And I always look for these connections, and I love all the ways that INSEAD alumni and not necessarily from the same class end up working together, doing business together, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But can you tell us the story of how you think about giving A and giving to INSEAD B and why you give and what motivates you? Yeah, no, I think um, uh, I, you know, INSEAD is uh, being now my matter is is one of the institutions I donate to, but all, all my donations go for uh, institutions that are uh, related to education. Uh, I, I, I think, you know, talent is somewhat overrated. So what we really need to care about is providing the opportunity for people. Um, and uh, I think education is probably the best segue for people to to provide opportunity for people to develop themselves and grow. Uh, so, and I would say it's also not only about money. It's about donating your uh, attention, your time, your your energy. So, in the case of Ansiad, I uh, I'm very happy to to be a a, a donor. And also, um, uh, when uh, when the school decided to set up the San Francisco campus, I also contributed a little bit, a tiny uh, contribution. But uh, again, I think education is. The only way that uh, some um, some people can really uh, develop in themselves. Uh, if you look at all cases of uh, emerging markets that um, you know evolved over time and, and grew, that was because of education. Hmm. One of the arguments, because you know I've been doing this for twenty years with our class, and one of the arguments, particularly for people from emerging markets, is yes, but I have, you know, in India, we are still building toilets, so I'm donating for this. So how do you counter, because you are from an emerging market, you're from Brazil, I'm Bulgarian, plenty of needs still, although mm-hmm. Bulgaria is in Europe, but how do you counter these arguments? Well, and India is perceived as a luxury good, right? It's business education. We all end up making money afterwards, so why should, why should you put money into this cause in particular? I, I, I guess the answer is uh, for certain types of basic needs, it's more about money. So if you think about, say, you just mentioned sanitation or uh, healthcare, these are things that it has to do a lot of uh, financial capital. And uh, most of that financial capital is provided by, by governments. Right, but in case of education, it's not only about the money. So, 
some of the uh, institutions that uh, I try to help uh, down here um, are institutions that provide uh, strategic support to improve uh, the quality of education in public schools, for instance. So they, they're not providing necessarily capital, but they're providing human capital. So uh, uh, training programs for teachers and things like that. Uh, and that, that's, that, that became very effective uh, uh, in, in Brazil. So um, I would say there are certain parts of um, basic needs that need to be provided by governments, but there, there are others that the private sector or even nonprofits can uh, step in and, uh, and help quite a bit. Great. Thanks. Thanks for that now. And thank you again for, for the generosity to say it enough. Let's go to the last bit, which is the quick round of questions. And we start Yeah, let me grab my cheat sheet. <laughs> ah, you do the cheat sheet. Oh, don't say that. Another inside learning. Yeah, right. We were allowed. Cheat sheet is good. Right. So you ready? Yep. Proudest achievement? Uh, well, growing a family. Success for you is? Uh, having the optionality to decide what to do and how to do it. Or, in other words, uh, the right to say no to certain things. Happiness is? Uh, enjoying the journey. The journey of life. Biggest regret? No specific regret, but uh, I think I, I had a few in, in, in my life. And every single time I had a regret, it was because I didn't listen to uh, enough to other people. Interesting. What keeps you awake at night? Well, the legacy that I'll, I'll leave to my, uh, to my daughter. Uh, like which kind of principles, which kind of values. That's the most important thing, I guess. Do you sleep well? Sorry? You sleep, you sleep well? Oh, yeah. That's very important as well, right? For longevity. So, retirement, ever, never? Well, we never retired, uh, you know, for good, right? Uh, we're always uh, in motion. We're always doing something. Uh, like, you know, professionally, I might retire someday, but uh, we, never, we, we never stop to do things. If you had to pick one book everyone should read, you've already mentioned two, but you can give us a third one or repeat them. Now, I'll, I'll stick to that. Actually, it's this one. Psychology of Money, Morgan Housel. You don't need to be a, a fan of investments. Uh, it talks about uh, different things. It's a great Perfect. book. Psychology of Money. Most admired public person for you? Oh, uh, well, I love sports, right? And uh, one public person that I, I really admire is uh, Roger Federer. Uh, not only is the GOAT in tennis, but I think he's, uh, he's a gentleman of the court. I had the chance to... Uh, was lucky enough to, to see his uh, farewell last year. He's a, mm. a great guy. Nice. Most despised public person, if you have one? Probably not the most despised, but most recent despised person, uh, that guy who founded uh, FTX sometime uh -huh. on uh, Friday. Yep. Mm. What's your explanation there? Any explanation? It's uh, simply fraud, right? It's like, uh, it's very, uh, many, many similarities to. Uh, other people like uh, Elizabeth Holmes uh, and uh, uh, Bernard Madoff. Yeah. Common traces. But the, what, what it really annoys me about that guy is the fact that he pretended to be a like philanthropic person uh, who d didn't care much about money and uh, there's all hype about crypto. So I think he, he uh, combined different things that... Uh, 
I really, I really hate. But how would you explain the role of the investors in in the fund, like well, risk management and all that? Like, how could professionals? And this is going back to psychology, which is what you've been saying. How can you miss it for so? And it was three years. The gig caught up with him fast enough, but still, a lot of money in there. Same with Elizabeth Holmes, which is. And same with Bernard Madoff as well. Uh, so it's always a combination of uh, too much greed uh, and, uh, you know, too cheap capital. So, you know, capital is widely available and people, people lose the respect for money when, when, uh, when money is too cheap, right? And that's one of the most repeated mistakes in the world of investments all over the place. Like people have very short memories. So this type of event and fraud happens consistently over the last 30 years. We just mentioned three of them, but there are dozens of those cases over time, right? But it seems to compress the timeline of how how soon they get uncovered. And maybe that's a side effect of technology advancements. I don't know, but Bernie Madoff took decades, right? That's true. Yeah, that, that has to do with technology. Uh, if technology was more available at that time, uh, you know, made of uh, wouldn't wouldn't have grown that much. Mm-hmm. You're right. There you go. And my last question for you: Are you coming to reunion? Yes, I am. I'm taking my family over there, so I'll. Uh, I'm very excited to to be back to uh, to the campus. Perfect. So looking forward, it's October 6th in Fontainebleau and gala dinner at the Chateau on October 7th. So everyone get your dance shoes ready. Bring the kids, not the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Ennio. In fact, now I can say this was a conversation with Ennio Shinohara, who is an MD, head of fund solution and business development at Credit Suisse Brazil. And uh, that's it for today. And We'll see you live in Ponte. Thank yep. you. You were listening to the Republic of Insead 20 years later, O3D podcast edition. It is my hope to remind everyone what an interesting and dare I say colorful bunch of people we are and how much we can contribute to each other, be it through ideas, knowledge or mere inspiration. The podcast is inspired by the original Republic of INSEAD yearbook produced on paper 20 years ago by Oliver Bradley and team. Thank you, Oli and team, for this contribution to our class's memory and for letting me continue in the tradition, title and inspiration included. Creator and author of the Republic of INSEAD 20 Years Later O3D podcast edition am I, Milena Ivanova. Original music by Peter Dundakov with help from Their Films Productions. Stay tuned for more and remember to book your tickets for the 20-year reunion in Fontainebleau, October 6th, 8th, 2023. Thank you for listening.